0: and welcome to the Parabola podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to share with you excerpts from our new issue, The Miraculous, and I'll begin with editor Tracy Cochran's introduction. What is the miraculous? Our first thought may be that it concerns a supernatural and sensational event. And yet, this summer 2018 issue of Parabola reveals that the most ordinary action, digging a garden or cooking a meal or making art, becomes sensational when it is performed with mindful awareness of what we are doing. Any action may be automatic or creative, repetitious or truly alive, participating in the life that is happening in the instant. The situation is completely different when my action is not a repetition but something new, an action that can only take place in the present moment to respond to a need that I recognize right now, writes Jean de Saltzman in this issue. What is miraculous is our ability to move from one state of being to another, from sleep to awakening, from numbly repeating what we think we know to seeing something new and marvelous that has been hiding in plain sight. A strong example is offered in these pages by Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh, who writes of the miracle of the black curious eyes of a child. Or there is the remembrance here by NPR correspondent Judith Valente of her time with the sisters of Mount St. Scholastica, learning how seemingly mundane acts like planting a garden are imbued in the Benedictine tradition with deeper meaning. Valente affirms Wendell Berry's view that there are no unsacred places, only sacred and desecrated places. The first head cook at Tassahara Zen Mountain Center, a vet who communes psychically with animals, a seeker who visits Ramana Maharshi, a mathematician, a physician, and others, contribute other striking insights in this issue. As a young girl growing up in traditional Korea, Yun Kim was caught in a story woven by others. In her contribution here, Kim, now a martial arts great grandmaster, confirms here it is only by letting go of easy certainty and approval that we can find what we truly seek. It is by leaving the known, the well-traveled road, the deep grooves of habit, that we find our true path. And on that path, we may glimpse and sense that our true life does indeed share in the miraculous. Let's look now at Robert Roll's essay, Seeing. In a small town in the Colorado Rockies, I worked one summer on a construction crew, four men or sometimes five, and I was generally the low man. The youngest and the least skilled, I did a lot of grunt work, picking up and unloading materials, shovel work, clean up, hauling trash. They all had pickup trucks except me, but there was a company flatbed I could use most of the time and I took it home at night. It was not much bigger than the pickups, but the bed was wider and rested above the wheel wells. When we weren't bringing in lumber or other materials, we'd load it up with the construction debris, wood scraps, dried cement chunks, busted forms and two-bys, bad dirt, and so on invariably it was me who made the dump run it was a county dump an abandoned quarry long ago drained out and by now close to filled in with rubbish well out of town and half a mile off the highway it was at the end of a dirt road that went nowhere else i took a full load at the end of the day dusk was approaching and i was looking forward to the weekend the quarry walls dropped off only 10 or 12 feet anymore with the trash growing slowly upward you could back right up to that edge if you were careful. A slight incline made it tricky, but if you worked the clutch just right and knew what you were doing, you could hang that truck bed just over the cliff edge and basically shove most of the pile right off. The back half was easy enough to unload this way, but the front half piled up against the cab was pretty much a pain. One piece at a time flung behind me or shovelfuls of chunks and pieces that mostly fell off the shovel, but I had a system. I'd set a six by four piece of weathered plywood exactly the width of the truck bed against the cab before piling everything on. And after I cleared off the back half, I'd pull the whole pile of junk on the plywood to the back of the bed where I could just shove it straight off. I got the back half unloaded, and I took the big pieces off the plywood to make it light enough to slide. Then I tugged on the plywood, but it barely budged. So I cleared a little more and tried again, and it moved a little more. Of course I was aware that the momentum of tugging on this thing would send me over the cliff if I pulled too hard or lost my grip, so squatting down I kept one foot pretty much behind me to leverage against going in that direction. And I kept testing the weight of the pile, just rocking my weight against it and gauging the resistance. Finally it was sliding more easily, a few inches at a time, until I got it close to the edge. I knew what I was doing. Then with my feet firmly planted and carefully taking in my position and the drop-off beyond, I took a firm grip on the lip of that sheeting and gave it one more good tug. With no detectable resistance, that board slid free from under the pile like it was on ball bearings, launching me backwards off the end of the truck, like a high diver at the Olympics. Two seconds, maybe three. There was no resistance in the empty air. I floated facing upwards, and all I saw was the dome of blue sky, no perception of where I was going to land, no sensations to react to, nothing to be done. I was completely at the mercy of this law we call gravity, and I completely submitted. My entire life did not play back before me. There was no time and no reason. I landed flat on a piece of scrap drywall that was apparently the exact size and shape of my body. It rested atop the loose debris in the accidental arrangement of that pile of junk. The board gave a little, sank when I hit it, as if cushioning my landing with care. Unhurt and strangely relaxed, I lay there, taking it in. It took me longer to realize what had happened, to register my extraordinary luck, than the time it took to actually fall. Staring up at that luminous, pale, blue sky, a single object appeared in the periphery of my vision. The jagged spike of a split two-by-four intruded into that blueness, pointing upwards, rising exactly vertically between my outflung right arm and my ribcage. And that's when it was that my entire future life passed before me, a future that I saw in glaring relief, its immense non-existence contained in an instant six inches to my right. I cannot tell you how perfectly blue was that pale blue sky. I'll share with you now three poems by one of my favorite writers, Jane Yolen, which appear in this new issue of Parabola. Land of Miracles. The towers fell, but traveling in Sligo, the roads winding us green into another time, we parked by a small stand of gravestones to stretch our legs. For a second, the world rolled in. I began to recite a poem made of memory and horror, turning and turning in the widening gyre, and turned myself to gesture to smile wanly at my husband, deep in his own dark reverie. Stumbling a bit in the soft, moist ground, I put a hand out to one gravestone to steady me. Horsemen pass by. Lightning ran its zigzag course through my hand and arm, face to face, with Yeats's grave. I considered coincidence, serendipity, randomness. I thought about parallels, chance, miracles, timing, luck. Yes, poetry matters. Words matter. Great buildings tumble, but story remains. That Glimpse The one you caught out of the corner of your right eye, red fox trotting into the darkness of the barn. The one you sort of saw when you turned, sudden parenthesis in an ordinary life where a great grey silently carried off a stoat. The one where you blinked twice at a flock of turkeys on the lawn, looking as prehistoric as their giant, feathered ancestors. The one where you glanced down in a field of red poppies to see a nest of eggs like gray and tan flowers growing in the ground. Those glimpses are the bargain we make with the world, a bet about miracles, how quickly they disappear yet stay, memory being what we are given in exchange. What the stories tell us. If you sit weeping at the cinders, waiting to be rescued, all you get are dirty hands, dark smudges beneath your eyes. If you stand handless in the middle of a meadow, waiting to be fed, all that happens is you starve. Take up the broom, sweep your own miracles through the dark woods till the very dawn sings. Reach into the water of life with the broken ends of your arms. Touch a curl of wave. Grow your own silver hands. Tears do not build a kingdom, sweat does, though to the reader they may look the same. But only one will earn your freedom, only one will make your name. finally, I hope you'll indulge me as I share my own short essay from this issue. To begin again. In Bluebeard, the villain's bride marries into untold wealth, the kind of money that means she can settle a dowry on her sister and buy officer's commissions for her brothers, that her mother will never have to work again, that her whole beloved family can live in luxury. Cinderella receives magical shoes and clothes and carriage from her fairy godmother or her mother's ghost, depending on the telling. She goes to the ball, she falls in love, she holds her granted wishes in her hands. Adam and Eve have the Garden of Eden and each other, paradise. None of them, at this moment, in the narrative of their lives, want anything to change, or not much. They have happiness, miracles even and they want to keep them. But there is the apple, the midnight chime, the one locked door. There comes a point in classically structured stories that is not an ending, but a prelude to disaster disguised as a happily ever after. The heroes' lives seem perfect, but perfection is fleeting. They disobey their husbands or stepmothers or gods. Punishment looms, beheading, imprisonment, exile. All seems lost but a disaster is not quite an ending, either. We never want a good story to end. If a book makes us cry or laugh or gasp, we instinctively hug it after we turn the last page, wanting to hold on to those feelings. Even a happy ending brings heartache with it. We remember our favorite books and films forever, but we'll never experience them for the first time again. Of course, no story is complete without its ending. A satisfying final twist or denouement flavors everything that came before it, confirming or subverting the themes that the narrator has built. A good ending can be the best part of the story. Endings in our own lives are harder to appreciate. We resist them not wanting to let go. We grieve not only literal deaths, but also the deaths of relationships, careers, places to live, and even faith or ways of being. Accepting these losses can seem impossible. The Buddha taught that suffering comes from attachment, from our stubborn grip on earthly things that can never provide lasting happiness. Suffering comes from the refusal to accept loss, but loss is both constant and inevitable. Job 5.7 tells us man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The human need to tell stories to shape our own lives into narratives can both trap us in attachment and offer a way out. The hardest kind of loss is one that changes the story we thought our lives were telling. Untimely death, divorce, unexpected devastation that feels like robbery. Perhaps the loss is of a perceived truth, learning that something we believed in staked the story of our lives upon is hollow or corrupt. We don't want to face this loss to turn the page and see what's coming. We wish we could stay happy forever, keep our grip on the happy ending that was really a prelude to disaster. Keep telling ourselves the same story, even when we know it's a lie. This is where stories can save us again, can heal in the same places where they wound. A hero faces disaster, goes boldly toward the threat of their own and their story's destruction, or they're not worthy of the title. In her essay, Momentary Hero, Parabola editor Tracy Cochran describes a hero as someone who dares to experience what is happening in any given moment, inside or outside, without denying it or resisting or seeking to escape. In its essence, the heroic act is bravery, in small moments as well as great ones. It is heroically brave to divest oneself of attachment to the past, to the future, to the story we believe we are telling. Joseph Campbell's monomyth, the hero's journey that underpins nearly all our most beloved tales, describes the abyss, the disaster, the seeming death, as a crucial step in every story, perhaps the most crucial of all. Crossing into the abyss means letting go of all the happiness that came in sunnier parts of the narrative. It is the part of the story in which the hero is furthest from the known the comforting familiarity in which their story begins. The abyss is Ulysses entering the underworld, Theseus finding the minotaur, Rapunzel's prince blinded by thorns. The abyss is fear and loss itself. But if the hero does not move into and through the abyss, she cannot reach the next step, rebirth. She would remain mired in the middle of her story simply because she was unable to let go of her beginning. She could not accept the gifts that await her beyond the terrifying present. In my own life, facing a painful loss head-on has invariably lessened its pain. Letting go and accepting the truth of the present moment can be harrowing, but once I meet it, I recognize it, I know it. I am folded in its arms. I know that the Buddha's description of suffering is true, and that while I cannot escape loss, I can escape, sometimes, briefly, imperfectly, the very human impulse to rebel against it. When I began studying the monomyth, I only read about it in essays, and I pictured the classic story structure as a linear timeline, beginning, middle, ending, one, two, three. Certainly, this letting go and moving into the abyss that the hero must do meant that she could never go back to the beginning. The first time I saw the monomyth illustrated was a revelation. It is a circle. Endings can bring you back to the home you long for, even when the journey has changed you, even though they seem designed to take it away. One of the most miraculous lines in literature comes at the end of Milton's Paradise Lost. As the title suggests, the whole poem describes the ultimate fall. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, separated from God, cursed with hard labor, with pain, with the knowledge that seemed so temptingly sweet before they consumed it. So they strike out alone and in mourning, forever changed, forever barred from their first home, yet ready to make a new one, to become the broken parents of all humankind. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. Solitary, but hand in hand, crying, but wiping their tears. Eden behind them, all the world before. The Miracle of Ending is that it gives us the gifts we need to begin again. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. Remember that thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a non-profit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. You can also visit us on your favorite social media platform, as we have active communities on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Our final thought for today comes from C.S. Lewis, who said... Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.